Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everyone, Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Our podcast is produced by Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. A little bit about me. I am Jeremy Scheinwald, as I noted. I am the founder of Mission Driven Group. Check out my firm at missiondrivengroup.com. And please remember to like our show on iTunes and to subscribe to it as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. And I'm happy to be your LinkedIn friend as well. You can find me on LinkedIn, of course. I'm excited to have Nadia Bujarwa on the show today. A former analyst at Perella Weinberg, Nadia went to Harvard Business School, where she met her co-founder of the partially eponymously named Dia & Co. That is that her partner's name is Lydia, and her name is Nadia, so they picked Dia & Co. And it is a subscription-based clothing box delivery company for women with curves, sizes 14 to 32. If you're looking past this demographic, you shouldn't be because it's a nine to twenty billion dollar market, and Nadia seems to have struck a chord with it. She's raised over six million dollars from A-list venture capitalists in an effort to see her vision through. She'll tell you more about it, but we're very excited to welcome Nadia Bujarwa to the show today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy, or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Okay, Nadia, thanks so much for, for being here. Thanks for having me. So you went to Wharton, and then you worked at, at, uh, at Perella Weinberg, and then you went to HBS, and I would just assume like the typical person who'd followed that path to HBS would maybe want to go to private equity or something like that after they graduated from, from HBS. Um, were you planning to be an entrepreneur soon after you, you went to HBS, or did entrepreneurship kind of happen to you? It was my express goal going into HBS sort of company. Um, so I... <clears throat> I did take a more traditional path to getting there, but for me, I think the idea of being able to be super passionate about something that I was prepared to dedicate every waking hour to is just a really invigorating idea. Um, and the idea for Dia actually began at HBS, so that fortunately worked out. So, you, so you went in with you went into HBS. You didn't necessarily you you knew you were going to be an entrepreneur. You didn't necessarily have like the idea down. Was there like a consistent process of exploration during that time? Like, how, how do you how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of a funny story. So my roommate and I at HBS both thought that we wanted to be entrepreneurs, and so we did this really dorky thing. We had a notebook for ideas, 
on our coffee table. And any time we thought of anything that could be remotely interesting, we wrote it down. None of those ideas were any good. Um, (laughs) But I think that there was actually something to having a process and saying, you know, the bar for what you're willing to kind of put your life on pause to pursue is pretty high. um, And it was going to take time to get there. Ultimately, the inspiration for Dia was not really a business one. It was a personal one. Um, I have been plus size for, you know, or at least some version of plus size for the majority of my adult life. Um, and the really cool thing that happened at HBS was I was able to look at the at the industry and at the opportunity as a business person and not just a consumer. And there was just, just this massive moment of kind of like, aha, this is incredible. Um, that happened while I was there and then you know, that's where it all started. So I, I bet you there'd be people clamoring for that list of discarded ideas that you, that you, just, that you just denigrated. <laughs> they were really bad. <laughs> really? Sh- share a crazy one with us. I mean, it was like, you know, we'd walk down the street and it would look like there was someone who was having trouble finding parking and we'd say, we should find a way to help people find parking spots or, you know, like laundry was a pain. A lot of these ideas have actually been done, done by yeah. someone <laughs> But those wouldn't have been business that I would have, businesses that I would have been a good founder of. Right. So um, was, was, your, was your roommate your, your co-founder or was your roommate, or your co-founder was, was someone else um, entirely that you founded at HBS? My co-founder was a section mate, uh, but not my roommate. Um and, uh, and was she as determined as you were to be an entrepreneur? Did she come in saying, I want to start a business? Or did you like, you know, grab by the arm and bring her along? Uh, she was also focused on it. She um, actually started her career two floors down from here at the Clinton Global Initiative. Oh. Um, and came to our, uh, kind of came at this from very much like a social entrepreneurship and social mission perspective. Uh, and for her, HBS was a matter of saying, you know, she thought she could have more impact uh, kind of on the corporate side. Um, she ended up going to Google directly after school and then kind of circling back to this idea. But, um, yeah, I think this was important to her, too. And actually, that's interesting. You know, she went back to Google. And and you also, you know, you had the idea at HBS, but you also joined Frida Nelly yeah. as a, its CFO and COO after graduation. Why why not launch it right away? What needed to happen before you could you could jump into Dia and Co? So what we did at HBS was decide that this was a customer that needed to be served. And so we we came at this completely from a customer perspective and we actually didn't have a business model yet. What we knew was that there was a way to unlock a tremendous amount of spending and really expand the market with this customer in a way that no one else was doing. Um, but how to do that wasn't clear yet. And it took us... You know, it ended up being an additional year of research and talking to customers and talking to, you know, retailers to figure out what the best model was to actually serve her with. Um, And as soon as that became clear, we kind of quit our day jobs and dove in headfirst, so... And, and day one, it's, it's the two of you guys that you, because I know you raised uh, you raised around a seed funding, I think in May of 2014 or something like that. Um, uh, 15, yeah. Two, yeah. 2015, okay, so you left your jobs in... A what? year before. Okay, a year before. Yeah. What... So what what happens? What is day one? I mean, the, the two of you guys on the ground. I'm assuming no other staff along with you. How are you? No making other it work? staff. Um, Lydia was still. Um, I quit my job before Lydia did, um, and so I was. You know, it's like it's like a funny thing of figuring out where to start. Mm-hmm. The good kind of um, one of the good forcing mechanisms that we had early was we decided we needed to be in an incubator, for no good reason other than the fact that it felt like we needed a little bit of structure. And so we started applying to all these accelerators and incubator programs 
which you know, in retrospect, I'm glad we didn't end up doing any of them. But at the time, it was this really great way to force ourselves to sit down and write out what we were doing and put milestones in place and actually figure out like what the next you know, set of goals was going to be that we were going to try to hold ourselves accountable for. Um, and that's where it started. Um, so, so what are those like? What, what what are those early goals like? What are the first couple of things you have to do for someone listening who's like, I have no idea where to start. Yeah. What, what did you do in the first month? We talked to anybody who would talk to us, um, and for us, and we're, the plus size market was at that time. The key people who we were trying to get on the phone were bloggers. Um, there's this really cool thing that's happening, you know, kind of in the world more broadly around body positivity and you know, kind of a rise in awareness around what it means to be fashionable at different sizes. And the people who were leading that charge were bloggers because traditional media was not fully on board with that idea quite yet. Um, And so there were these bloggers who were having exorbitant impact on this customer base and were starting to really kind of stir the pot around how this customer could be served. And so we started talking to them because we figured, A, they'd probably be the best place for us to find early customers. B, they know this customer... Um, and the segment in particular who we're trying to reach out to the best. Um, and, you know, if they think it's a good idea, it's probably a good idea. And they loved it. Um, our earliest supporters were bloggers. Um, and our earliest customers came from bloggers. That's really where the ball started rolling. Um, we had these bloggers put up a bunch of surveys for us just to pinpoint, you know, or start to test really the idea around. Um, within plus sizes, it seemed like there were, you know, a dozen problems, right? The the gap between where this woman should be spending and where she is spending is so large that there's no single contributing factor to that. But we had to kind of take a perspective on what the biggest factor was. And in our mind, that was distribution and the actual shopping experience. So we started putting out all these surveys with these bloggers um, to get their followers to answer all these questions around the experience. And then everyone who answered that survey got a call or an email from Lydia and I, and we you know, the three surveys turned into probably 500 survey respondents, all of whom we spoke to and tried to get boxes out to. Um, and that's really where it all started. This is a great article. I wish you could remember what it was, what it was called. It's by Malcolm Gladwell, <coughs> pardon me, about um, how entrepreneurs are actually risk averse because they just see an opportunity in a way that is very different than the way the world sees it. And I, I call it like the am I crazy moment where you're like, you're mm-hmm. like looking at this market and you're like, wait a second, there's something wrong that this doesn't exist, right? So this is like a $9 billion market, and you're looking at it, you're like, why You know, why doesn't something exist here? And that's my question. You're like, why doesn't something, why didn't something exist there? What, what would be the, is it that retailers don't know how to speak to that market? Like, like what is, why weren't there many people preceding yeah. you? So the full context of the opportunity is actually much larger than that. Because what's really crazy is the fact that, so the overall apparel market in the US for women's apparel is a $120 billion market, right? Of that, the number that you just quoted is actually a specialty retailer mark, uh, plus size apparel number. The overall plus size apparel number is closer to 20 billion. Um, so plus size women make up $20 billion out of a $120 billion market. The flip side of that is the fact that they make up 60 to 70% of the population. And so you put side by side the fact that she makes up a majority of the population, by some measures, you know, a meaningful majority of the population, and she is such a small minority of dollars spent on apparel. And you're like, what is going on here? Like, there's got to be something to this. Um, 
And it turns out that there is. And it, you, you can ask retailers, and I think they'll tell you different versions of this. I think the truth underlying the decision is ultimately one around branding and around what retail and fashion um, and the industry overall has deemed to be an aspirational customer. Um, and the truth is that for most brands, our customer sits outside of who that aspirational customer is. So the rational decisions that they're making aren't around market size, they're around preserving brand value um, and preserving you know, kind of what it means to be associated with their label. Um, and that's, from, in my estimation, what ends up driving most of these decisions. Um, that being said, most retailers ultimately realize that there's this huge growth opportunity in plus, and they'll try to do something in the area. Um, you know, so if you go to Macy's and Herald Square a couple blocks away from here, there's half a floor of plus size apparel. It's just on the seventh floor and completely separated from everybody else in the entire department store, right? So like what ends up happening is that they serve this customer outside of their core customer, and she feels that, right? Like she knows that right. she's passing all these like really cool floors to get up to where she can find clothes, and that she's not, you know, who's being celebrated in that store. Mm-hmm. Um, and overall, those two things together mean that the average woman above a size 14 has a very, very different shopping experience um, than women in smaller sizes. And that's ultimately what we wanted to fix. If you're a small business owner or entrepreneur and you are having trouble organizing your finances, fear not. FreshBooks can help you get on track. FreshBooks is an easy-to-use cloud accounting software that helps small business owners get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. FreshBooks is designed exclusively for small, service-based business owners who bill for their, for their time and expertise. If you sign up for FreshBooks today, you'll have access to invoicing, billing, expense capture and tracking, time tracking for contract employees, reports, and a mobile app for your iPhone, iPad, or Android. FreshBooks has a customizable review tool, which will be super helpful in soliciting real-time feedback from your customers, which is further super important for any budding entrepreneur. Your clients can even view their full payment history and account statements on the client portal. FreshBooks integrates nicely with many of the tools you already use, like MailChimp and PayPal, so you don't have to overhaul your entire system. FreshBooks is offering Smart People Should Build Things listeners a free 30-day unrestricted trial. That means no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash smart and enter smart in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up to take advantage of that offer. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Let's talk a little bit about the model itself. So there's there's there because there are a couple different ways to use the site. And then I want to follow on with a question of how this thing starts to ramp up. Yeah. So the way that the, the way that the model works is uh, customers come onto our site. They go through a fairly comprehensive onboarding survey that tells us everything from, you know, uh, their size and their height to where they live, their preferences around silhouettes of certain garments, how they like to wear their clothes, how they spend their time, their social media handles. We get a pretty robust perspective on who these women are, um, and our customers are very excited to share with us. Um, And that basically starts the process um, of what is kind of iteratively getting to know her and her style over time. So after that first kind of onboarding survey, she will be paired with a stylist. 
the stylist um, customers have the option of actually speaking to a stylist prior to receiving their first box, and some of them take us up on that and really love that experience. Um, but the stylist will use all that information to put together a box that has five uh, pieces of apparel um, and accessories um, that the customer then gets to try on at home. So. You know, for a lot of our customers who don't have access to bricks and mortar retail opportunities, this is a really cool fitting room experience where she can try clothes on and have that really fun kind of moment prior to purchase and make a really informed decision around what she wants to buy. Um, she only she only buys what she wants, she returns what she doesn't. And at the end of that process, she provides very, very detailed feedback to us on why she chose to keep what she kept um, and what she didn't like about the pieces that she returned. And that helps us make better selections for her going forward. Um, and then we kind of start again. So when you were engaging bloggers, were you were you sending them a box? Were you just telling them about the service? Like, how were they giving you the, the feedback that said, hey, this is a great idea? So even just describing that idea um, to most people in our market, you get a pretty excited response. Um, one of the interesting things about our space is that because there are so few in-store opportunities for our customer. Um, her primary retail channel ends up being e-commerce. And e-commerce can be great for all kinds of reasons, but it ends up being a very solitary experience for her. And in all of our initial customer testing, one of the themes that came out loud and clear was the idea that she felt very alone in this process. And so explaining to somebody that there was gonna be a human being on the other end of this who was invested in and committed to helping her find really great pieces of clothing was just this like magical moment where people were so excited. And then you actually have them go through the experience and fortunately, like they agree that that was pretty magical. Um, and they get even more excited and they want to tell everyone. So the bloggers, we didn't really have boxes to ship out at the beginning. Um, and just describing that process was really exciting for them. Ultimately, you know, it was much more valuable for them to be able to actually show their followers a box and do an unboxing video and all that kind of stuff that ended up being really impactful. So we did send boxes. Um, but that was really it. They, the really cool thing about our space is that we're like in a moment of advocacy, I'd say, where people are, um, you know, kind of the thought leaders in the space are really fighting for more awareness around how underserved this customer is, how excited she is about fashion, how much she really wants to participate, and, you know, forcing people to take notice. Um, and because that is the theme of our industry at the moment, you know, we don't have to pay people to want to share the news about what we're doing. They're really excited to be able to share something with their followers that they think is really cool um, and actually, you know, like a hundred times better than the experience they currently have. You mentioned the videos. Like, I, I actually, I watched a bunch of them and they were, they were like, I mean, really touching. Like, I think one or two of them, you'd have to be like a, like a, you have to like a, have a black heart to not like <laughs> fight back a tear or two. It was, it, yeah. they were pretty amazing. Like, I mean, do you have, do you have some, I mean, are people, I assume people are sharing their stories directly with you. Are there, are there a couple of, is there a story or two that you can share with us about some of your customer experiences? Um, there's so many. It's, that's personally what's most rewarding for me, the idea that we are selling clothes in a box, but this clothes means so much more to our customers um, just because we are interacting with them around an area in their lives where they are often insecure um, and where they've you know, had difficulties in the past. Um, a favorite one, that's a hard question. Um, one that comes to mind just because she was one of our early customers and really you know, kind of helped us in the beginning get over how hard it was going to be to get this off the ground because it felt like we were doing something so special. It was a woman who um, I had a styling call with her and 
she was so hesitant at the beginning to do this because she was just generally discouraged by the idea of shopping um, and as is the case for many of our customers had opted out of the experience um, and she was so hesitant around that first box and she got the first box and was you know kind of completely blown away this is if like a, I think she's somewhere between 55 and 60 years old um, and wasn't comfortable putting a video online but videotaped the entire had her husband videotape the unboxing for me to see oh, wow. when she received the box and it was just like you know, watching somebody react in the moment to something that you've helped them do is just really magical. And she she was so excited and she put everything on and, you know, she like twirled in a dress. And I, I imagine that it was the first time in a long time that she'd had that kind of like deep emotional response to a piece of clothing. Right. Um, and then you see her husband get excited and, you know, she wrote every time she wore one of the pieces. And it was just so really sweet. special. It was yeah. just really special. And there are a lot of those moments. Um, and I think overall, it, it makes our customers kind of uniquely loyal um, and you uniquely, um, they evangelize our brand in a way that I think is unique to our space. Right. No, that's. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is incredibly touching. I imagine it's very fulfilling every day to, to get this kind of direct feedback from customers. And yeah, um, I'm not sure that, that, that a lot of feedback. Yeah. I'm not sure that, that there are that many businesses that kind of get that kind of that, that direct feedback from their customers. Um, I, I suppose you know, like like retail, but in this case, where it's so personally impactful in people's lives. Yeah, it's really awesome. So let's go back to the to the to the business building piece. Um, you know, I think so. I, I said I maybe got the date wrong, but I, you know, you raised kind of I raised an early round of 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 of, uh, of angel funding mm -hmm. from like sort of is that like a friends and family round? It was uh, a friends, family, and former bosses round, um, <laughs> and so we we bootstrapped for fifteen months, okay. um, which was hard, um, but in retrospect, the best thing we could have done. Right. There's like something so. There's so much clarity that comes from a lack of resources around what you actually need to be doing to get to the next step that I think, ironically, is like a luxury, right? Because as soon as you have more money, you're like, well, how should I spend it? We could do this or we could do this. And when there's no money to spend and you're really trying to prove that you have something that people are going to love, you're very, very efficient. Yeah, um, super creative. Too. I, I, was, I haven't always been a bootstrapper, and yeah. anyone who knows the show knows that. Like I, I you know, lionize bootstrappers. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, yeah, I, mean, I think I'm incredibly yeah. creative and, and resourceful during that period. I'm like weeping nostalgia over my own bootstrapping experience yeah. because it was so hard at the beginning. It was so much fun because the, the desperation makes you gets yeah. your, your energy flowing. Totally. So, what, so then what what happened? Well, I want to ask a question about who you raised funds with, and then I'm going to try to remember to come back to what happened. To, uh, you can help me come back to the next question. I'll give you the next question first. Okay. What happened that made you, that sort of demanded that you stop bootstrapping? But um, but when you have a friends and family around, I, I I would be, I personally would be like nervous engaging these people as many times as I caution them. I'd be like, look, this is, entrepreneurship is risky. Mm -hmm. You could lose everything. And like, are they really getting it or they, do they believe in me? I mean, how much of that went on? Did you feel any anxiety about anyone you were taking, taking funds from? A lot of anxiety. Yeah. Right. Like this is, these are moments where you're basically calling on all your social capital, all your professional capital, um, and I would not have been able to do that if I didn't have such deep conviction in what we were building, and just an unshakable belief in the fact that 
there was an enormous business to be built in plus size apparel. Like, you know, it may not have been the business that we started with. We may have to change what we're doing. But there's a business to be built here, and we are the best founders to do it, right? And so really getting to the place where I believed that so deeply that I could go back to all these people who, um, you know, had believed in me and said and say, like, hey, I really need you to help me get this idea off the ground. Um, it was hard. And it also, the first few months after that round, it was just like so, I was so anxious because it, you know, those are like the last people you want to disappoint, right? They're the people who've like really, uh, you know, stood behind you and, and done something really special. So certainly it comes with a lot of anxiety, but at the end of the day, I think there are a lot of uncomfortable moments in entrepreneurship and it's important to know that you can make those things happen early um, because you're always going to be asking people for favors. You're always going to be hustling in one way or another to get things done. Um, and that was just the first kind of big leap in that process. Was anyone breathing down your neck saying like, hey, where's my $25,000? I gave it to you, you know, six months ago. Did people understand? Or did yeah, you get those well, calls? I mean, certainly I think that most people don't understand the risks involved um, in ventures like this. But I think to the extent that it's possible, being able to raise money from people or raising only the amount of money from people where you can be confident that this is not like a life-changing decision for them is important because, you know, you have to be realistic around what potential outcomes are here. And if you think you're taking money from somebody who really needs that money back, then you probably shouldn't take it. Right. Um, and, you know, that certainly wasn't the case for any of the people who um, who we took money from. It was uh, one of the best things that came out of my three years in investment banking were a lot of managing directors who believed that I could pull this off. So <laughs> it was helpful. That's great. No, it's a tremendous, tremendous vote of confidence from people yeah. who, are, who are financially sophisticated. Yeah. So question two was, what what happened that you were like, okay, this is the end of the road for, for self-funding. We just, we just, we can't get past this hurdle without raising an angel round. Uh, we started to be overwhelmed by the demand. Um, we had... That's a good problem to have. Yeah, it was a good problem to have. We, um, so Lydia and I, for the first 1,500 boxes at least, personally shopped for each customer. Wow. So we were, I probably spent, you know, 15 to 20 hours a day at Macy's and Lord & Taylor and JCPenney and all these other retailers physically shopping the floors for people. Um, and putting these things into boxes and send, sending it out like a personal like a personal shopping service just to understand like what people were liking not necessarily in the product but in the service and the experience um, and then a couple much more uh, kind of outspoken bloggers got a hold of our boxes and the night before Christmas in 2014 something like 5,000 people signed up for our little Squarespace site um, because this blogger video had gone up. Wow. And we woke up on Christmas Day, and it was, and it was Christmas. the craziest <laughs> Christmas we've ever had. And we were like, oh, my God, there are 5,000 people waiting to get boxes from us. There is no way. <laughs> like, we are capable of very hard work, but there was just physically no way for Lydia and I to be able to pack that many boxes and get this done. Um, it also made the fundraising a little bit easier. So, um, what, so how did you get that done? What did you tell those people? 
We told them they were going to have to wait, which they were all fortunately happy to do. Um, eventually, we got to everybody. Um, and then, you know, it kind of grew from there. But <laughs> it was... I, I'm just seeing so 5,000 requests. I mean, have these people yeah. put a credit card down and paid? Are they, are they just like, hey, we're interested? I'm trying to think what version of the site we were in. Then They had ordered boxes, so they were far enough in the process. I think we were on... Yeah, we'd built our first web app at that point, And we were taking credit card information... Um, through Stripe, hopefully legally, um, <laughs> and yeah, they were ready to get boxes. So, what did you have to do to get them fulfilled? I mean, did you have to just hire a bunch of temporary workers to do this? How, how did you? How did you we fill five thousand orders? We hired a lot of interns. Um, we called up all these vendors and said, "Hey, we need a lot of inventory. What do you have in stock?" Um, and like, the truth is that a lot of this was just like sheer willpower and brute force like we were still manually emailing like tracking numbers to every customer who got a box like there was nothing automated in our process and we like just it was a slog but we got it done and then it got a lot easier right because then you know we were able to get a technical advisor and we got a CTO and then we built processes and software and things got easier and you know it was the first kind of jolt that got everything else going it's a, it's a pretty good cue there um, <clears throat> because we're talking about, you know, being so scrappy. And when people are building their businesses, you're obviously trying to, like, cut costs. And um, there are so many different things to worry about. And you don't have time to spend worrying about your budget and scheduling appointments or building your own web presence. And that's where Wix.com comes in. Wix.com allows anyone to build a stunning website. Millions of entrepreneurs create their, profession, their own professional websites using Wix.com. And the results are <clears throat> stunning. Wix gives you access to hundreds of customizable, customizable templates and easy drag-and-drop tools you can get up and running today. You can go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit card required. Go to Wix.com today. Um, so we were talking about, about how that made the fundraising easy, having 500. I love that you <laughs> like you woke up on Christmas, and it really was Christmas, it literally, was figuratively. A wonderful Christmas, you know. yeah. Um, so, so, so you have these 500 orders on, on, uh, on Christmas, and that makes it easier to talk to, um, talk to venture capitalists. I mean, it's interesting that, like, I guess venture capitalists can look at sheer math and like, be like, oh, well, this is a huge opportunity, but retailers yeah. can't. I found that, that, that to be very fascinating. Yeah. Um, but uh, they didn't at the beginning. Th- that's what I said. Did you did you did you have the same kinds of obstacles? I mean, because you have a list, you have a list, you, you know, um, Lehrer and and the Founder Collective, who um, who also uh, invested in Olo, a past guest of ours, mm-hmm. and uh, and a bunch of a bunch of other a list, um, you know, VC funds. So I, yeah, so I was going to ask that. Who did some of them have the same? Some of them, obviously, from what you said, had the same problem as retailers. Yeah. But what was the reaction? How many VCs did you have to meet with and say to, before you could say, look, this is real and people are getting it? So all institutional investors pass on our angel round. We would have happily taken money from VCs over our friends and family, and that just wasn't possible. Uh, it was very hard to explain the opportunity. I think that there's something very real about not being able to have somebody who has experienced your pain point or could enjoy your process on the other side of the table. And some VCs are very honest about that, and they'll say, I need to be able to invest in products that I love and that I want to be able to use every day, and I just can't do that with your product. Um, and that's a real bias. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think the people who like saw it immediately, which wasn't until we went out to raise our seed round, um, 
were people who in some place in their life had seen this pain point at play, right? Whether it was their sisters or their mothers or their wives or their daughters. Um, there was some personal connection. And as soon as they heard what we were doing, it was like, of course, like that makes so much sense. Um, but it also helped at that point that we'd grown 50% every month for 12 months. And they're like, okay. Sounds like it's going well. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely something here. Yeah. So, so you raised $6.1 million. And um, I mean, you sort of said this a second ago, right? Like, you know, there's there's something to be said for being that scrappy. What 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 problems, is, I guess, from staffing up and getting these people to fulfill these orders, but, but what problems does it solve? And what, what changes for you? What changes for you in, you know, your day-to-day and, and in the experience of the company when you get that kind of money? Almost everything. Um, you know, we are hiring a completely new kind of senior team. Well, not a new senior team, our first senior team. Um, the team um, up until today has been a team of executors um, and a team of just people who've loved building a business. And now we're at the point where, um, you know, we're able to work with functional leaders and functional experts around how we scale an operation. So we, we run our own warehouse. Um, and, you know, having supply chain knowledge around how to do that and all the logistics involved in doing that well is an area where we've been able to bring in very, very senior leadership and you know which will help us get it to the next level uh, merchandising and buying is another place where you know I've bought all the inventory through today and that's more because I enjoy doing it than because I have any kind of professional experience doing it um, and we're now getting to the place where like these are real teams that need to be led um, and having experts kind of leading those efforts are is just critical so the teams are changing we have new leaders coming in uh, we're moving offices. We're moving into a big warehouse. We're at a moment of, uh, we're certainly at an inflection point. And both physically and, you know, kind of the people around the table, are, um, our jobs are all changing. So how do you ensure that there's like $6.1 million? I, I think people perceive like you, you win the lottery. But, of course, you're like there's expectations for what you're going to do with that money. And I think also in the last little while, some of the... I feel like there's a cultural change, like some of the profligate perks and stuff like that, and the you know are, are being sort of frowned upon now. That yeah. some times are changing for some startups. How do you ensure there's discipline around the company with with that kind of money? Yeah, so that was much more money than we had set out to raise or expected to raise. So we went out for a two million dollars seed round, and you know deal dynamics work in funny ways. Um, when you have momentum in a process, the outcome can turn out very different than you were expecting, um, and that was the case for us. The way that we approached raising more money than we had initially planned to raise was around, you know, trying to remove uncertainty around the macro environment from what we wanted to do, right? So it, these conversations were happening in December and January. It was already clear that the next, you know, 12 to 18 months could be challenging uh, from a fundraising perspective, and we didn't want to raise more money so that we could spend more money in the same period of time. It was really a calculation around how long we could extend our runway um, and still be in a position of kind of control and power and when we would need to raise money again um, and, you know, how long it would be before we needed to do that. So we actually had a chance to kind of put our heads down and really execute before we needed to think about it again. Um, 
we're like a scrappy group by nature. Um, we work and fulfill out of a warehouse in, Bu- in Bushwick, which we love. Um, and, you know, it, I think we'll, we'll try very, very hard uh, to keep that scrappiness um, and just focus on the fact that we have an awesome customer and a great product. And when you have an awesome customer and a great product, there aren't a lot of bells and whistles that you need um, to kind of get that off the ground. So I think you used the word dominoes a second ago. I mean, is, is it is it is the type of thing where you know you 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 struggle to get the first one aboard, then when the first one comes on board, you say to every single one thereafter, the first one's on board, and then yeah. the second one, okay, the first two are on board, and then everything just falls into place thereafter. Uh, I mean, that's exactly how it works. Right. That's exactly how it works for. Um, I think almost everything when you're starting, you know, one of the things about entrepreneurship that's so hard is that you're starting from a standstill, right? And you like actually have to build momentum and get something moving and kind of overcome that initial inertia and the fact that people aren't going to believe that it's a good idea. No one wants to join your team and no one's going to give you money. And how do you overcome all of those things? The first thing has to fall into place. So like the first thing that fell into place for us was our technical advisor, was excited enough about what we were doing that he wanted to become our CTO. Um, And having killer technical talent on board um, in the industry that we work in is, you know, a tremendous vote of confidence. And then from there, we were able to get VCs to look at us a little bit more closely. We were able to get other senior people to look at us more closely. And then one one thing leads to the next. And all of a sudden you're in a very different place, but you certainly need that first chip to fall before you can actually get kind of the engines humming. And you closed around in January of this year, right? Am I yeah. got the dates right? Um, you know, and this is like a kind of a tough time for, for, for online retailers and you're closing this round. And I, mean, I think like maybe I, you know, fab.com kind of became like a bit of a punchline, um, you know, uh, I think they raised and went through like a hundred million dollars, and you know, at that point, I think Guilt was sold like a week later yeah. um, for about what they raised, and and you know, Birchbox had gone through some troubles during the summer, another subscription service. So all these are kind of like uh, the last two in particular, sort of touching around the edges of of what you're doing in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there? Are you looking around saying like, hmm, I like this is disconcerting? <laughs> are you, and yeah. is there a cautionary tale you go back to? Are you able to learn anything from any of these past? I mean, look, Birchbox certainly is not a failure. They're, I think they're doing fine. But but um, but just from some missteps that you've seen others have, um, uh, any is there a touchstone for you? Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of, I'm sure there's less different lessons from each of those experiences. Um, but for us, ultimately, I think what it usually comes down to is true product market fit. Right, and I think that there's a lot of ways to mask product market fit when there's a lot of money in the system, because you can spend so much money on marketing and you can do all these really fancy things that never really let you see what's going on under the covers. Um, and for us, we did so much before we had any money that it was clear that this was a customer base that was like eager and ready for better options. Um, so I think you know there's something to be learned around customers. There's also something to be learned around competition, right? It always surprises me that people um, love to compete for the same customer when there are other great customers who are looking for great products too. Um, and that's our customer, right? VCs invest in multiple, you know, multiple retailers and kind of 
retail ideas Mm -hmm. in customer sizes zero to 14. And then they think about everybody outside of that as kind of being in the same category. And the truth is that that's not the case, right? right? Like if anything, they should be investing in more plus size businesses and straight size businesses because there's more people in the plus size market. Um, But that's not the way that it works. And most people end up competing for the same customers. so, are you, so that, that actually dovetails nicely with another question. So are you, have you found any increased competition since you started? Or are you like, well, we used to be by ourselves, but people are catching on now? We haven't yet, but I'm sure we will. Um, I mean, I would, I would assume that all we need to do is prove that this can be successful for this customer to others, for others to start paying attention. Um, there are just very, very few players in our space. And for now, we're kind of enjoying that. But the truth is that... Uh, our market is so large and underserved that you have to believe that more people are going to come into the into the market, and I think that ultimately that's what's best for the customer, right? There's a, sorry. No, I was just gonna say there, there, there's enough money here that we're not we're not fighting for market share. We're trying to increase the size of the pie, right? And so in doing that, it doesn't really matter as long as everyone is contributing something new to this customer. The pie should be three to four times bigger than it is today. So there's lots of room. I just got excited by my own question and tried to interrupt you. The, <laughs> <laughs> are you in a position where you're giving retailers feedback at this point, saying like, "Hey, we'd really like to see this." Like, you don't yeah. you don't realize that this is what people need. Absolutely. The really cool thing about our market is that, or one of the one of the many cool things about our market is that the brands were as excited as the customers, because the truth is that like this distribution inefficiency was so strong that brands couldn't figure out how to get to customers, and customers couldn't find brands. And everyone was kind of frustrated by the process. So brands have loved working with us um, and kind of learning from what we've been able to learn and you know, getting a deeper understanding of who their end user is in many cases for the first time. So, so your firm is, is growing quickly. I, have, I don't know if you can share this, but how many, how many people are on board now? Uh, we don't share subscriber numbers. Oh, I, mean, I mean, how many employees are on oh, board? Oh, employees. Um, we're about to cross fifty. Fifty, and how many? How does that? How does that affect your role? And how does that affect your partner's role and your partner partner relationship? And clearly, yeah. things have to be really fluid. It's incredibly fluid. Um, our jobs have changed multiple times since we started, and they're about to change even more dramatically. Uh, but I think, you know, co-founder dynamics are so critical in a company like this. And the thing that Lydia and I knew about each other from the outset was that we could communicate and that we could adjust quickly and that we're very complementary to each other. And so our roles have kind of evolved, but it's been it's been very fluid um, and a very organic process for us personally. Uh, and, you know, there's like so much to do that it's just clear that one of us needs to be doing it. And, you know, we kind of divide and conquer. So what do you do? What are your what are the things you've kept? I mean, you're, I'm assuming you're not out there you know, doing the doing the shop itself now anymore. What, what, what? No, I, I did style some boxes this morning, though. Oh, wow. Um, okay. I enjoy doing that. I think that that's, like, the core of our product, and we should all be um, styling boxes. But um, tomorrow is the last day of the month, and we will all be packing boxes to hit our goal. Uh, you know, other than those kind of unique moments, which we all enjoy, we do obviously have bigger parts of our, of our roles that we have to do now. Um, but, and, and now that we're bringing in kind of senior leaders, we'll probably be doing less of that, but that's kind of the fun of being at a smaller company. So you mentioned, actually mentioned styling some boxes. I'm curious about this, because style's so personal. Like, how, yeah. how accurate can you be 
when you're predicting one person's preferences off the other. Like I know my brother has a similar body type to me. I wouldn't wear anything he wears. Yeah. So how do you, how do you how do you figure that out? I'm asking uh, for the special sauce here. No, I mean I I think people will tell you a lot, right? And I think what we found to be the most valuable is p- things that people can tell us visually instead of in any kind of like you know written or or binary way. So they'll share Pinterest boards with us. They share their social handles with us, and actually seeing people and understanding what their preferences are is really easy. There's a skill to it, right? Like being able to—it's like a form of pattern recognition, right? It's like saying this person seems to fall into this category, therefore my best recommendation for her is this. So this isn't just like getting some data points; you're actually seeing pictures of what this person likes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I can be dim sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I, I always like sort of say like starting businesses. I mean, you, like you kind of have said this yourself. Like you're almost like sprinting a marathon in some ways. Yeah. Um, can you talk about like the pay? I mean, clearly the pace has been has been grueling. Um, you know, are there sacrifices that you've had to make? Are there, you know, I, the one that people always sort of reference is like a missed friend's wedding or a missed this or a missed that. But yeah. what are some of the things you've 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 had to do to sacrifice to make Dia and Co go? A lot. Um there are only so many hours in the day and committing to an experience like this does force you to prioritize in your personal life um and i've certainly missed a lot there's kind of very little that you can do about it at the end of the day um i think i've been able to maintain the relationships that are most important to me but almost every other relationship has fallen off so if you're listening you know that (laughs) you've fallen off sorry (laughs) um no, it's tough. Like, you know, weekends are a concept that don't really exist. Uh, vacations is not something that's real. Uh, it won't always be that way, but, you know, these are fragile moments for the company. And we, uh, it's our baby. You know, we'll, we'll be there to do whatever it takes to get this done. Are you a wake up in the, in the middle of the night and write something down type, or are you kind of like able to get your whatever you need, your six, seven, eight hours and, and wake up refreshed? Um, definitely some restless nights. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, I I don't know I don't know any founder who could honestly say otherwise. There's just like the truth is that you're like juggling ten more balls than is humanly possible to juggle, and some will fall. Hopefully, the right ones. Um, and that's I expect it to be true for a while. Maybe I'm. I, you know, it would be great if I were wrong. Look, I'm almost, I'm almost 12 years into this business, yeah. and I think, uh, sincerely, I look back to the beginning of the podcast, and I used to joke around about how, how neurotic I am, and I'm not the most like calm person, but yeah. uh, when it comes to my own business, I think I'm pretty chill outside of work, but I like I think this is the first year, 12 years in, where I like haven't had long patches of like waking up in the middle of the night, and 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 I still have yeah. d- days here and there, so yeah, it, totally. it, it's just the way, it's like a, it's like a life, you know, you gotta... I mean, the responsibilities are real at this point, you know, like people's livelihoods and you know about people's families and you have investors who want to know what's going on like it's not um they're real responsibilities so i'm curious because we're, ta- we're, we're talking about an ignored segment is there is there an ignored men's version of this segment and that isn't being served that's just begging for a dia and co to or possibly rename something else yeah uh, to be to be hatched yeah there is okay. dia for men's is definitely on the roadmap um Ultimately, we see ourselves as a body-positive brand, um, and expanding into men's is very consistent with that. 
Okay. Well, on the <laughs> to be continued, I to guess. To be continued. <laughs> One day. Yeah, okay. hopefully soon. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for thanks so much for, for coming out and sharing the story. It was a lot of uh, really interesting to hear. A lot of fun. It's very clear you're, you're. I wish people could see your face. Like you're very very <laughs> passionate about this, which is really nice to see. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. It was fun. Good luck. We'll have you back. Thank you. That sounds great. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.